Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome this great Thursday morning. We're here to talk to you about the benefits of cooperatives. The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. Um, you know, one, one of the major reasons that they're sponsoring this program is just so that people can get the information so that one might look for a co-op to purchase from or even start a co-op when you find out about the benefits. And to talk to us today about the benefits of cooperatives and how you liberate people and get people out of oppression is Esteban Kelly. Good morning, Esteban. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks and for having me on the show. Thank you for, for being on the show, taking out your time. Uh, let's get started. By, can you tell us how you got started with this co-op business, this co-op economy? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I had the good fortune of um, going to university in a town that had um, an autonomous student-run housing cooperative, um, actually one of the largest in the country. And as part of that, there were over 1,200 students who were involved in uh, acquiring property uh, over the last 80 years or so and running uh, commercial kitchens, dining programs. They employed uh, together as students. We, we employed about uh, 20 or so staff members. We had a whole warehouse and distribution system for, for food to deliver to all of the different houses. And um, through that process, I was exposed to a pretty broad range of the, the co-op processes and advantages and benefits. I saw how it can impact food systems and really hands-on, everyday democratic process and really help to sculpt leaders. They called it, I think, a co-curricular because it was not intersecting directly with the things that we were studying on campus. And we had the good fortune of this being really built up over decades by students so that all of the wealth, all the processes were, were owned and run by youth uh, themselves. What school was this? This was out at UC Berkeley uh, in California. And from there, the University Students Co-op Association is what it used to be called, and now the organization is called Berkeley Student Co-op. But from there, I actually got involved in uh, the national co-op movement or sector uh, through NASCO, which is the North American Students for Cooperation. And at the time, basically since 1968, they've been headquartered in the Midwest really bringing together mostly young people, the majority of whom were organizing in housing co-ops, but certainly a lot who were involved in student-run businesses and dining cooperatives throughout Canada and the U.S. And what they did was basically form a federation, a membership-based organization, convening somewhere between six and 8,000 uh, individual youth and students throughout 
the two countries, uh, I suppose, in their membership, to really support them with education and training. I mean, you can imagine all of the complexity that goes into running these businesses, some of whom were dealing with millions of dollars a year in their, their annual budgets, uh, that there's a lot that can be lost when you have cohorts of students graduating or leaving to study abroad or transferring universities and, and not uh, being able to tap into the, the built-in institutional knowledge. So they, in 1968, came together to form this association to hold an annual education and training institute and a lot of different kinds of educational programs so that it wouldn't be that difficult every time you had a new batch of, of youth or students who were learning to run these things. So they basically were able to figure out how to how to create an education and training regimen that ran like a well-oiled machine, a lot of resources for uh, facilitation, uh, board development, overseeing staff uh, who were hired by the students, and, uh, and everything from, from new orientation for new members uh, to outreach and, and marketing. You know, Jim Jones, you know him, I'm sure, well, has been on the program from NASCO. Um, he, uh, yeah, I know Jim really well. He was, uh, he was my boss when I was working as the director of education and training at NASCO. He was our executive director for a long time. Yeah, so I got a sense of NASCO, and um, I, I went to school at Historically Black College, and I would really, really would like to see if we could get uh, some housing co-ops in the HBCUs uh, because because of everything you just said, particularly the you call it co-curriculum. That's a new term for me, but it is, uh, and um, Esteban, I taught for 12 years in my career, uh, mm-hmm. 11 at the college level, and I always would bring in, whether I was teaching math or marketing, those are the two uh, subject matters I've taught, and mm-hmm. I would always bring in, uh, get the students to go out and talk to um, and do a marketing study for a real live company. So I, I, I know the benefits of the knowledge coming alive when they have to exactly. use it every day. Uh, so I, I like the idea, one of the reasons I like co-ops is because of the fifth principle, and that is training uh, knowledge and information. So this co-curriculum works really well, and I would love to see that on historically black colleges and campuses for the education and building of wealth and building leadership, everything that you just talked about. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that really going back to basics with the co-op principles, um, that's that's the key element that really lifts up and uh, and empowers young people to be able to be autonomous from whether it's the university or other uh, major businesses is huge. There's, it's something different than being uh, an employee or, or an intern somewhere when you are actually owning and controlling the resources, uh, when you're not just checked in with as a constituent to have a say in something happening in your life, but you're the main event. Um, and even if you're not on the board or if you're not running a particular department, uh, because it's all democratically controlled, you still have um, an, an enormous amount of influence and say in, in the shape of how your organizations run and what you commit to and what you prioritize. So it's, it's not just the education and training, although that's key in an environment and a context where there's a lot of turnover happening, but autonomy and independence, democratic member uh, control, um, all of those really core uh, things that really bind together all the different cooperative sectors are something that are particularly useful for young for young people who are getting involved um, because it doesn't only just shape that moment where they're involved in a particular co-op that might be connected to their campus and university life, but for the rest of their lives. They emerge from that experience 
with all of these skills about running businesses. And sometimes it, it puts them, it sets them a decade ahead of some of their peers who might not have had the opportunity to plug in to, um, to cooperative structures. You know, it could be a decade ahead or a lifetime ahead because too many people <laughs> don't get these experiences. And I just, for quickly for the audience, um, Mr. Kelly has just talked about the fi first five principles of, of a cooperative. And the first one is volunteer and open membership. The second is democratic member control. The third is members' economic participation, both putting money in and getting dividends out if there's a profit. Fourth is autonomy and independence. No matter where you get your funding from or what country you're in, uh, having this autonomy and independence is extremely important. And number five is education, training, and information. And six and seven, just quickly to finish this off, is cooper mm -hmm. six is cooperation among cooperatives. And seven is concern for the community, the cooperative community, the community in the state, uh, city, uh, country, and then world. Uh, very much concerned about community. So you, you just hit it off, and I'm excited about listening to you talk because you're a young man, too, from, from my perspective. How about, can I ask you how old you are to get all of this knowledge? Well, I, so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on the eve of my 34th birthday. Okay. I don't know how young that counts. I'm certainly not a millennial. Um, well, you're, I'm, twi like I'm twice your age, so you're young. <laughs> you're young. Great. And I only learned about co-ops 20 years ago. To have got, I wish I could have sure. gotten this knowledge uh, yeah. in college or high school. And, and that was through managing uh, housing cooperatives. That was my Absolutely. introduction. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm excited yeah, about doing property management just because I've learned about co-ops. Sure. Yeah, and it's like you said, I've packed in a lifetime's worth of, of experience um, and perspective just from being getting involved in cooperatives at such a, such a young age. I mean, as a teenager, that's, that's a wild ride to be pouring over, introduced to, to financial statements and balance sheets and overseeing um, a whole team of staff uh, and, and really being able to have a whole set of resources, whether those were about how we spend our purchasing power and our dollars, uh, our human resources, um, some of our, our actual fixed assets in, in the form of property. Certainly out at, in Berkeley, California, we had 20-something properties. Uh, and some of them raged, ranged in occupancy all the way up to 100, 150 people living in one big uh, apartment complex or house. Um, so that's, that really can set you, set you years and years and years ahead uh, of other folks. I think coupled with that, to get to how this ties in with some of the other co-op principles when we talk about um, really lifting individuals and communities out of oppression and, and really having concern for community and, and asserting that cooperatives as a tool can build a better world, that, that they're actually an important uh, component of how we get concretely to, to a just, sustainable future um, for people all over the planet. And uh, for me, that came from my, my organizing background in uh, community organizing, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, gender equity. And uh, what was interesting about the cooperative uh, when I showed up, and certainly since then throughout my career, was the ways in which those co-op principles allowed for a lot of my values that I had picked up and a lot of the skills that I'd learned as a community organizer using democratic process and facilitation and monitoring group dynamics, um, as well as building solidarity with, with like-minded organizations, that all of these things had a home within that, the cooperative model. 
we are going to have to take a break. And I want to come back and break down some of the things you've just talked about. It, it, that's what excites me, what you're taking these principles and just spreading it out and doing so much in the world. And if anybody out there would like to have a, a question or comment, please call in at 1-800-450-7876, and we'll be right back. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power. And this is why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you information about cooperatives and the benefits of cooperatives so that you could use this data. Because having you have to put action to information in order to get the power out of it. And Esteban Kelly is here today giving us a lot of information that's powerful on, you talked about right before break, uh, food justice, land justice, racism, how do you eliminate racism, how do you get liberate, liberating of people, and uh, how do you get people out of uh, oppression using these principles. And I would like to understand more of that. And what's the name of the company, A-O-R-T-A, that you've started? Aorta. Yeah, it stands for the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, and we're a worker co-op. Uh, it's one of the, my democratic workplaces right now. We're, we're a worker co-op um, that really works to support organizations uh, that are working for social and economic justice and trying to build what we sometimes call a solidarity economy, and that's something we might end up talking about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we really work to resource and build the capacity of existing cooperatives and collectives um, to help them do the work that they're doing better and have a better impact. Some of that is internal, helping to support their, their own internal um, training and dynamics and group health or strategic planning or conflict resolution. And some of that is external, to help them have a, a greater impact out in the world um, through doing visioning or some of the, the ways that they see their connections to the organizations they're, they're in alliance with or um, the communities where they're doing their work. So how do you how do you get people to resolve conflict conflict resolution? If you're working cooperatively, that seems like that's and you're always going to have if you have two people, you're going to have at least two different points of view, if not exactly. more. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. I mean, one thing that's so interesting to me is how um, how easy it is to rally behind the banner of democracy, and and even even in the process of doing so, everyone seems to have their own perspective of what that actually means. What are we upholding? And it's, it's easy to get behind it and say, yay, democracy. But when you really get in there, what we found in Aorta and part of why we developed this business is that it takes a lot of work, and we don't all have practice at democracy. Um, oftentimes we grow up in families that are hierarchical, where there isn't democratic uh, process and decision-making, moving on into schools that are also hierarchically run, uh, and youth and students are often disempowered and are not given a voice, and then uh, working in, in jobs and workplaces where you have a boss or a board of directors or investors who don't even work there, uh, might not have any expertise in the actual industry, uh, and they're the ones who control and make all the decisions. So part of what we figured out is that we need to, to really commit to helping people delve into their own innate capacity to practice democracy, to learn what that actually means. Some of that gets down right to basics of communication, of, of learning how to listen differently, 
uh, setting intentions and really being able to adjust everyone's expectations uh, at the same time that we're accommodating multiple voices in different processes. Um, so conflict resolution is an important skill, not just to have outside mediators show up when a conflict flares up, but to just anticipate and know that conflict is part of everyday life, whether that's in your family, at your workplace, in your community, with your neighbors, with your parents, uh, or on, your kids. on the road, on the roadway driving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Taking a road Everywhere. Oh. Um, classic American uh, settings, right? So, um, so what are the things that we that we um, need to understand about where conflict comes from? You know, the extent to which tension and conflict are inevitable, and therefore, what's what's really incumbent upon us is to build up skills to be able to move through it. It's not about trying to prevent conflict. It's about what you do when it shows up. It's going to show um, up. It's it just, going to show up? Yeah. Exactly. So the one thing about being married, I found out, is you cannot have a democracy with two people. <laughs> so you better <laughs> learn how to, how to, how to uh, resolve conflict or you really have a hard time, a really hard time at it. Yeah, but it also pushes us to, to be better people. And I think that people who've been in long-term relationships – um, or people who are uh, partners or co-owners in small businesses, whether they're worker co-ops or, um, or joint partnerships, uh, all have a different experience of, of what it means to, to slow down, to work through some of that tension, to have humility, to, find, to tap into your capacity for forgiveness, and to do the hard work of, of finding common ground. Humility and forgiveness. Are you preaching? Yeah, are you preaching today? Are you preaching? Well, that's the stuff I hear at church. So you say that's the building blocks of democracy. Yeah, in order to be able to to really communicate and 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 listen. If you're in a situation where everyone is empowered and everyone has different perspectives, different assumptions, you know, you might have all witnessed the same the same meeting or the same opportunity, and people are coming away with different ideas of what they should do or how to respond. You need to be able to first get everyone's ideas out on the table. And if someone feels like they've been disenfranchised or silenced, whether that's because of their identity, uh, their gender, their race, their background, um, maybe their culture or what language they speak, those kinds of things are going to affect how they show up. And uh, or affect your ability to, to listen and really see them as full people um, and as, as people whose perspectives matter. So those, th that's what I mean by building blocks. Um, it's not that it's all necessarily baked into your uh, business plan uh, or your articles of incorporation, but somewhere in the, the guts of, uh, of, of running your organization, whether that's your policies, your expectations, or even your hiring processes, that stuff's going to have to be laid out from the get-go. What are your intentions for, for listening to people? Is it truly democratic? And to the extent that we're all working on this and it's all imperfect, what mechanisms do you have for reflection and for feedback? If someone says, you know, you said that this was all democratic, I don't feel like it's very democratic. You know, I, I feel like women aren't being listened to the same way that men are in this workplace. Or I feel like our policies discriminate against parents of, um, of young children and, uh, and, and people who are working parents, and that's difficult. Uh, or I don't feel like I have access to our orientation materials because they're only in English. Um, so if you really value me and my perspective, we need to talk about that. Or how are we accommodating mental health or people with different physical abilities um, in, in our organizational policies? You know, I think that part of it requires us to not see 
everyone as the same, but to be able to see the the uniqueness and the specificity of where people are coming from and be inclusive of of those needs um, at the same time that we are bringing an analysis of power and of systems of oppression and how they impact our organizations and our, our interpersonal relationships. I love listening to you talk. You have a lot of knowledge, young man. You have a lot of and just talking about the values, um, the Greenbelt uh, Cooperative Alliance right here in, in uh, the D.C., Maryland corridor uh, mm-hmm. says that the values, cooperatives are based on the values of self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. In right. the tradition of their founders, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. And I guess if you really care for others, you have to be humble and forgive and, and be able to forgive. So how do you get at these things in your company, Aorta? How, how, what do you do? You do classes? Do you do consulting? Do you, what do you do? You workshop? Yeah, we do all of that. And, and I think what's important to underscore out of, out of those principles that you just listed, uh, Vernon, is that those are all different than charity. And it's not to say that there isn't a place for charity, and certainly people organize through nonprofits and churches and community groups. Um, but there's a there's a, a marked difference between helping people to build up their own power, uh, take control of their own lives, and supporting them in doing that through principles like solidarity, like you're saying, that that's really different than charity. Which, which can impede the efforts to, to really shift things structurally and shift dynamics, right? It's not, it's not a unidirectional thing where one party is receiving um, and the other party is, is kind of helping. But it's how do we kind of go arm in arm and lift ourselves out of the situation that we're in, recognizing structurally that people who are marginalized and under-resourced aren't there because of their own fault, but that that's part of, that's part of what our system produces, Right. Um, so the work that we do is really resourcing groups who are making interventions, whether that's because they're worker-owned companies or resident or tenant-run housing, like with cooperative housing, uh, or groups who have a, a mission that's really about economic change or, or social justice. Um, we do fee-for-service work, uh, so we don't apply for grants. Uh, some of our clients might, and they might use that money to kind of subcontract out to us and bring us in. So we function as consultants. We also function uh, as educators. We show up at, at conferences and different events. Sometimes we speak at colleges and universities uh, and charge a fee, and we, we operate on a sliding scale basis. So any of the resources that we're able to tap into by speaking at a liberal arts college or a large state-run university and helping to educate people about you know, food systems uh, and, and uh, food chain workers and their rights or about uh, conflict resolution or to understand uh, how feminism and, and racism and, and those struggles are intertwined. Any of those talks that we do are going to subsidize the work that we do for uh, underfunded, under-resourced groups who also need our help. That could be through staff training and development, strategic planning and organizational development, or uh, just helping to build up specific skills around uh, facilitation or running meetings or policy development. One of the things and Esteban, started, we have to take yeah. another break. We'll come right back with this. And I've got a couple of comments to talk about this charity that you talked about. We'll be right back talking to Esteban Kelly and listen to the great wisdom that he has.
1450 WOL. Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. Listen, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's, NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And most often those economically challenged communities are people of color. And uh, that's why WOL is helping to sponsor this program. They've done a lot to make sure that we've stayed on the air for the last almost a year and a half now. So Esteban Kelly is our guest. He's a young man who's, who's wise and part of the wisdom came from being in a cooperative early on in his uh, career at a in a U, at UC Berkeley. And he's given us information about the economy, and he was talking about charity. And I got a couple comments on that before we get back to Esteban. Jim Joseph was on the program, and he was the ambassador to South Africa. And he was talking about some of the philosophies and the ways of being in South Africa. And he said that the U.S. policies and programs help to hinder people. They don't. They don't help people get get wealth. They don't help people to get assets. They just give money and help people to survive, but not to strive. And the converse of that, Dame Pauline Green was on, who is the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, and she said that cooperatives help people to come out of poverty with dignity. So they get wealth, come out of poverty by Mm -hmm. getting wealth, and they have dignity. And that's what charity... Charity takes away the dignity. It takes away pride. It takes away a, a sense of doing. It gets make people lazy and all of those kinds of things. Uh, so charity doesn't work, and too many of our programs in the U.S. That's what they do. That which is how I got into this. Also, Esteban is that looking at housing co-ops. Housing co-ops mm-hmm. work much better than apartment buildings, but the U.S. and through HUD gives money to people and then mainly rich people to create apartment buildings and not create a, uh, affordable housing through cooperatives, which the, every measure you can look at, when you look at the research, they function much better and provide a better quality of life and creates wealth. Why we don't do that, that's a whole that – we might get there when we talk about solidarity economy. But, <laughs> <laughs> okay, you were talking when we went to break yeah. about this charity. Did, do you have anything else to say about that before we go to the economy? Yeah, just a couple things. Um, And, you know, of course, it's not unrelated to the economy, but um, I think about even what you were just sharing about U.S. foreign policy. I think about the work That's domestic and foreign policies. I actually draw a sharp distinction between U.S. domestic and foreign policy. Okay. Uh, For example... Uh, I, as you know, I'm a board member with NCBA CLUSA. Um, that's the National Cooperative Business Association, uh, as we're known inside the U.S. And externally, it's the same organization, but internationally, we're known as CLUSA, um, which is uh, which is the name we were founded under almost 100 years ago, the Cooperative League of the USA. And through CLUSA, we do um, close to 35, over 35 million dollars uh, a year of international co-op development. So much of that is funded through us winning contracts to do uh, food security and and youth empowerment work abroad. Some of that is helping uh, coffee farmers, 
uh, or subsistence agriculture farmers to help stabilize different parts of, of the world. Um, so is that now about us really being in line with the ultimate aims of, of U.S. sort of imperialism and U.S. policy? No, but those are some dollars through the U.S., either the State Department or the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, that are going into doing this work. By and large, I agree with your previous guests that that money is, is going toward charity, right? But when we win the contract, the cooperative advantage is, is entirely different, and it's more along the lines of what Dame Pauline Green was saying, that when we do work internationally, we're actually helping people to build up infrastructure, democratic process, um, all of the co-op education, actual assets, so that if we have a three-year or a five-year contract and we're done, we pack up and leave, and we've left cooperative businesses on the ground. We've left a whole infrastructure for civil society, and that might just be a rural village. But that might be a, um, a youth leadership in, an, in a small town. Um, but we've left that infrastructure there so that people do have means and assets to lift themselves up. And that's, that's exactly the kind of difference that we see through using cooperative tools um, versus traditional ones. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say was just a quick quote from a person, an organizer uh, from the Bay Area named Molly McClure, who organizes with the Catalyst Project um, and Causa Justa, Just Cause. And Molly says that solidarity, this is her quote, uh, solidarity is not about providing concrete resources to an oppressed group so that they can more easily, sorry, solidarity is about providing concrete resources to an oppressed group so that they can more easily use their own power to change the conditions of their lives, right? Using their own power to change mm -hmm. the conditions of their lives. And that's what's different than charity. And Papa Sin was on the program, a gentleman from Senegal, and that's exactly what he was talking about. And all kind of, and he works for Clusa. Or yeah. I did. He's retired now on a farm. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's exactly what our folks that have, that have been on the program from Clusa or NCBA Clusa, that's exactly what they've talked about is this power of helping people to help themselves. And what I like what you just said is when you leave after three, five, ten years, whatever the case may be, you – as successful as you have been in creating a successful business, and for those of you out there that a, a co-op is any business that you can think of can be a co-op if it's owned by the employees. It's called a worker co-op, and we use that term today, worker co-op. If it's owned by the people that use the services or products of the business, then it's a consumer co-op, and that's uh, examples are housing co-ops and credit unions. And then you have a lot of uh, other organizations, if they band together to market, market their products, marketing co-ops, or band together to buy products, a purchasing co-op. So it's different mm -hmm. forms of co-op, but it's ownership that makes the difference. And uh, another ownership quote. Ownership and the seven co-op principles, as yes. we laid out. Yeah. Ownership and control was the two bigger ones. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. okay. And producer co-ops, you know, I, I don't want us to overlook producer co-ops. Uh, most of the agriculture in the U.S. is uh, is really run by in the co-op sector is run by producer co-ops who are aggregating, uh, whether they're dairy farmers or whether they're uh, farmers in the southeast U.S. Uh, most of the African American co-op community are involved in co uh, producer co-ops, as opposed to some of the other sectors you were talking about. So it's it's both internationally and within the U.S. an important sector uh, to lift up and, and and plug into the whole commodity chain when we start talking about uh, worker co-ops like Equal Exchange and some of the fair trade work that they're doing, uh, or some of the consumer co-ops like grocery stores. Um, 
that it's it's a it's an important piece of the chain that sh- that shouldn't be invisible. And you can get Equal Exchange by going to shop.equalexchange.coop. I just got a package. I ordered a, a my my supply of Equal Exchange, and the food is great. Um, <laughs> and it came in yesterday. Um, so I only learned about Equal Exchange through doing this program, and somebody introduced me to them, and they were on uh, during the Christmas holidays or during December. Uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about what they do. And I'm just fascinated about what they do around the world. Uh, Then the Federation of Southern Co-ops is a group that worked with the farmers in the South. And most of the land that's owned by African-Americans are in that group. Um, And trying to protect that land and protect those farmers is what they do. Tell me about this solidarity economics. What's that about? Yeah. Um, well, it's about some of the principles that we were just talking about with solidarity and, and how that links up into uh, mobilization of resources and economics. That can happen at the community level, right? Um, people doing child care for one another, people bartering or exchanging, um, businesses uh, purchasing from one another locally rather than um, importing things from businesses that are far away, maybe even international. Um, and it, it really does lift up the importance of workers and the value of their labor, uh, as well as things that are outside of the, the dollars and cents economy. So that could include um, time banking and, uh, and, and other kinds of uh, sharing of, of resources, um, people giving each other different kinds of rates or, or discounts. I know that as a worker owner in Aorta, sometimes we've had um, people do a, a, a fair trade um, or an equal trade of, um, of in-kind work. So if they do website development, we can facilitate their staff retreat and they'll build a website for us without money changing hands. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of, um, of things that are part that characterize a solidarity economy, and, and it really is rooted in principles of um, you know anti-imperialism and social justice, uh, and even feminism. Really thinking about the ways in which it's not just about defining yourself by uh, a job that you show up to or clock in at, but how do we see people as individuals, families, and communities holistically for their needs, um, and and be able to support folks who might need to take time off to take care of their sick kids instead of saying you have X number of sick days for your job. So bringing that kind of ethic to all the work that we're doing. Um, North America is actually the most underdeveloped region of the world, um, other than possibly Antarctica, um, in the solidarity economy. So Latin America, um, Africa, Europe, Asia, all over the world, um, there's a pretty sophisticated and robust solidarity economy that's in place. And this includes um, farmers and uh, people who are doing agricultural work, people in cities who are buying from one another, uh, people who have influence and power in, in the government um, and have policies that are, that are friendly to, to that, that work that's happening. Only recently in North America have we really started to catch up, um, and and in the U.S. we're still behind, pretty far behind uh, our neighbors to the north in Canada, particularly Quebec, where a lot of this work uh, is happening. You know, and when we went to the uh, 2011, um, United Nations declared the uh, 2012 as the year of the cooperative, and there was a meeting, and I had the opportunity to go up to that meeting at the U.N. my first time there. And I was amazed at what was happening in Russia and China and South America. 
uh, around cooperative. Uh, so that's what I <clears throat> you are speaking to, and it was just it seemed like they were ahead of us. Okay. Yeah. In, in the U.S. and Canada definitely is ahead from what what I've learned since I've started this study of cooperatives. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you're trying to, with your company, bring the light to of this. Are there any ways that you are looking at how you promote solidarity and cooperatives? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to promote it. I mean, some of it is actually just um, helping people to to shift their mindset of how they interact with the economy. So, spending dollars locally, um, supporting rights um, and struggles for for workers and for families and um, and being in solidarity even internationally so being able to, to trace whole commodity chains for the work that we do in, in aorta and, and part of our purpose um, really is about increasing the capacity of solidarity organizations a lot of which is about cooperatives um, and worker owned businesses is helping them function better helping them develop and grow um, or to replicate. It's not always about growing uh, to scale and having small, well-functioning businesses become giant behemoths. That's, that's not necessarily the point. But are there different kind of fractal ways of getting to scale by replicating um, our efforts and helping either other people start it or starting up uh, another branch of what you're doing? I think a good example of that is the Arismendi Association of Cooperatives, which is a, a network of independent cooperative uh, worker co-op bakeries and, and food outlets in the Bay Area, all over the Bay Area. And they base their model on, um, on the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. And in a short amount of time, they've actually been able to, to grow tremendously. They'll take some of their own surplus at the end of the year uh you know in cooperatives we we the money that's left over isn't automatically considered profit right but we consider it surplus and we decide what amount of that we want to reinvest in the business or in the movement um and then maybe if there's stuff after that we might consider that a profit that goes back to the workers as a, a patronage dividend um Look, they, we're going to come right back full of taking a certain amount of that money and investing it in the, the development of other cooperatives that's that's the, the principle of solidarity. It's the only way to be able to resource and grow co-op movements. We've got to take a break, and we're going to come back and talk about the use of those funds when we come back. Please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back, and time is almost up. We only have one more segment. News updates on the web at woldcnews.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks on Everything Cooperative. We have Esteban Kelly as our guest today. And right before we took the break, we were talking about the use of the funds. If there's, um, from a cash flow standpoint, if there's more money left over, if you spent less than you brought in, then you have some money left, uh, normally called profit. But then it's a question of, of that surplus fund, what do you do with it? And that's what Esteban was talking about right before we took a break. So, Esteban, do you, you want to pick up on that on where that money goes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in uh, traditional economics for the last three, four hundred, five hundred years, um, businesses are, are owned by the investors. The idea is you're taking a risk by investing in this thing. And if it works out, you don't lose your money, then you deserve a kickback, right? That's shareholder businesses um, and, and most investor-owned things, even businesses that are, that are bankrolled 
through traditional lending as opposed to uh, cooperative lending and and um, the principles of solidarity economics that we were getting at. So that, and that's called in, capital. That's called capitalism. You put up capital and you get it back in interest. You get back money back. Yeah, that's certainly one important pillar of capitalism, <laughs> although I wouldn't try to reduce it all to just that. <laughs> okay. um, but, yeah, so the difference is with, with cooperative, this cooperative economics, um, that the money that is left over after you run all your operations and pay everyone fairly, um, and, and maybe that includes investing in your own community in different ways, um, that you can decide what happens with it. That could go back into reinvesting in the business and saying we're going to get new um, new software, new technology, new computers, or we're going to put this money aside so we could hire more people next year and have resources um, to train them, or we're going to put this money uh, into our sister co-op. Maybe there's another business down the street, or maybe it's not a co-op. Maybe it's a family-owned business that really could use the help because they took a financial hit related to the price of, of, uh, of food or different commodities, right? So... Um, or you can invest it, you can put it into reserves for a rainy day and say, in case there's a tax hike, we now have the money, you know, in case of emergency, we can break the glass and have the resources to cover that um, if we're not as profitable next year. So that money is called surplus, and I think what it does is it, it kind of flags it. By calling it surplus, it flags it as something that there can be democratic decision-making to think about what are the priorities and how do we want to allocate surplus as opposed to labeling it profit, immediately saying we're going to split this, you know, um, either equal ways for, for every person or proportionally based on how many shares you have or how much money you've invested, right, which is the model for shareholder uh, or investor-owned businesses. Um, so it then becomes a group conversation about what do we do with this common resource um, and um, and how many opportunities uh, are there to spend it in a way that can actually grow the cooperative or the solidarity economy? Who makes that decision? The members would. Yeah. So in most cooperatives, um, that might happen through management. If you're dealing with something that's really large at the scale of uh, big credit unions um, or big agricultural co-ops, but for some purchasing and, and, and smaller ag, ag co-ops, um, they might hold a member meeting. They might have a referendum um, to decide what they're doing with the surplus. Sometimes that's why you elect a board of directors, that they decide that. The difference with cooperatives, right, is that these are not investors sitting on your board. They're the people who are actually um, doing the work. They're the members. So it might be because they're consumers, as you said. It might be because they're producers. It might be because they're workers. Um, but the important thing is that they actually have a stake and a perspective in what's happening, and it's not about a profit motive. The motive um, is much more comprehensive about that. It might be about their livelihood. It might be about reducing prices. It might be about um, being able to pay a better price so that uh, workers who are uh, lower down on the commodity chain, maybe growing your bananas or your coffee or your chocolate um, in the global south, are paid a, a better and fairer rate wage. Uh, or maybe it's startup capital to help them form a cooperative, which is exactly what happened throughout the 90s as groups like Equal Exchange um, really grew and got off the ground. In a housing co-op, is, is a lot of it's called replacement reserves. Uh, put money into, yep. I just for most people, I just, it's savings. 
but they're like uh, some people have envelopes, or at least that's what some people did in the old days. They would have they put money in different envelopes for different things. In this category of of um, savings, would would be called replacement reserve. Whenever the roof had to be done or new windows yep. put in place, <laughs> you'd have money available, and you would not have to. Like when I grew up, if the roof went out, <laughs> then there was a big problem because there was no money to fix it. Or even exactly. if a window broke, no, my parents did not have the savings. So this this has taught me a lot about how you plan for the future through co-ops. Um, now, how has this knowledge helped you in your personal life? I had a lady on a phone, uh, um, on a program named Ruthie Wilder, who's the president of a housing co-op in Baltimore, and she talked about how it helped her with her finances. How how has all of this knowledge helped you day in and day out with what you do in your personal life? Well, I would like to say that democracy, being able to use it and practice it every day, helps me in my life. You know, it helps me as uh, as a leader. A leader in my community, it helps me. I mean, the other thing, Vernon, that you need to understand is my life has co-ops woven throughout all of it. You know, I, I live in a housing co-op. Um, I work in democratic workplaces. Um, I used to work at Mariposa Food Co-op for eight years, uh, where I was a I was a worker owner, part of the staff collective, and I'm still a member. And I shop there, and I'm very active um, in their food justice and, and educational organizing. Right. So all of those levels. I mean, from my housing co-op, which has about eight houses in in West Philadelphia, to my, my workplace, my food, and all the different networks and layers of associations uh, for all those different industries and sectors. I'm surrounded by co-ops, and I think that the ones that that have the capacity to to really weave relationships, um, build meaning in your life, uh, where there's time to sit down and talk about how you're doing. And it might be that we're at a staff meeting, but we're still going to hear about the health of your mother, um, or we might hear about the anxieties you're going through in your romantic life, in your relationship, or the difficulties of your pregnancy, or the conflict with the with your next door neighbor or the pressures of gentrification in the neighborhood that you live in, which might be different than my neighborhood. So I get to have a different vantage point in all that, and it's not just that I have to read it through, um, you know, a, a computer screen on Facebook or Twitter, uh, and it's not that I get to hear stories just through the newspaper or, or even radio, but that having personal uh, relationships I get a vantage point on uh, on different people's lives from all over the country and, and all over my neighborhood, and uh, and I get to share my own. You know, there are people who really are, think that having a process to to share what's going on in your head is helpful through therapy or um, psychology, and I think that is important. And I I think that um, being able to expand the opportunities for doing that uh, through cooperative structures and group process. It's helpful, and it's not that you need to share everything in your life with everyone in your life, of course, but, but being able to, to build trusting relationships to the greatest um, scale appropriate is, is incredibly precious. Fantastic. Um, do you vote, like in Philadelphia elections or national elections? Uh, I do. I vote in all of the things. I vote as often as possible. I'm one of those people who votes in May and in November, even if it's an odd-numbered year. Um, I'm... I'm fairly active um, in those things because I think that they matter. And I think that we can both participate in the system we have and push it and shift it to, to become closer in line with the system we want. 
I actually am a mayoral appointee, so this is the extent of my my public um, participation. But I, I I was appointed by the mayor of Philadelphia to our uh, food policy advisory council, which is housed under the office of sustainability. And so I, I sit there and weigh in with other citizens who are appointed, along with some ex officio members who are employed by the city of Philadelphia who serve at the pleasure of the mayor to offer advice, uh, research, public education about everything from um, from reducing hunger uh, and, and uh, addressing the needs of people who are food insecure to uh, reducing waste and uh, creating systems for composting to um, really dealing with urban agriculture and vacant lots and how we use and, and really manage the commons in the city um, and all the way up to food procurement, you know, the choices that we can make about how uh, public institutions spend their dollars and making sure that they do that in a way that's uh, accountable and reliable and that, that keeps money really circulating locally. If we're going to be spending billions of dollars as a city on money or any city for you in D.C. or for us in Philadelphia, um, having that money stay local is important. Right. Rather than giving tax breaks for international companies to come in and promise jobs that end up having low wages and then siphoning off all the profits from people who in your own community who spend the money and having it all go to a headquarters somewhere. So those are the kinds of things um, that we're able to lean in on and uh, really build up a more robust, um, committed food system that addresses food security, uh, alleviates food insecurity and, and lifts up uh, food justice. You know, we only have two more minutes, and I would like for you to put me on your mailing list for when your organization is doing things. I'd like to come and learn as much. You've taught a lot here today. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what? how do they look up your, your either your webpage or your email address so that they can get a, in touch? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, so I've been on Twitter while, while, we're, while we've been having this conversation. My handle is at rad black maps uh you can also find us at aorta co-op on twitter and our, our website is aorta.coop um you can find uh more about the solidarity economy network and the new economy organizing that we're doing through neweconomy.net um or at new economics on twitter and um we're it's, i'm pretty easy to find <laughs> you can google me you can find me on facebook twitter all of the things. Um, Philadelphia at Philly Co-ops uh, is our handle for the Philadelphia Area Co-op Alliance, where I'm the board president. So we're pretty active on Twitter there. And yep. our uh, website is just philadelphia.coop. We've got to go. And I thank you so much. I've learned a lot and like to keep in touch with you. Everybody Absolutely. have a great, thank you, Vernon. great, great day and work cooperatively. 1450 WOL.